me now to God in prayer. Father God, we come before you as one body, as an assembly, and we praise you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that we come to you not on the basis of the good that we have done, but rather because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Father, we we praise you for your work in our congregation and for your work in growing us up, and we thank you that that we are not the only congregation that is assembling this morning to praise King Jesus. We thank you that there are many others that center themselves around your word. Father, we pray this morning for Providence Road Church as they meet just down the road from us in Miami. Father, we pray for Jose Abea as he preaches today from 2 Samuel 6. Father, would you work in their church this morning? As your word goes out, would you allow it to echo and reverberate through their congregation in the lives of their church? May they grow in their community together. And Father, we pray the same for our church here. May we mature in Christ. May we grow in Christ even today, we pray. Father, as, as we enter into this Christmas season, we acknowledge that we are so easily distracted by earthly things. Amidst the, the good joys of this season, Father, we pray that we would treasure Christ all the more. May we know Christ. May our lives be consumed more and more with Jesus Christ, we pray. Father, we pray for those who are grieving and hurting in our congregation this Christmas. Father, we pray that you would be near to the lonely. We pray that you would be with those who are suffering and that they would turn to Christ. Father, as we come to Luke 1 this morning, we pray that we would be a people that take you at your word. Father, would you help us to grow in faith? Would you give us the gift of faith? Father, we pray that you would give us the gift of certainty to know that your word can be depended upon. Father, I pray right now for those who are in this room that struggle with doubt. We pray on their behalf that as they look to your word, even this morning, would you give the gift of faith? We pray that all this in the good name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I had known Toby for about 45 minutes. And here's what Toby told me. He said, I'm going to count to three, and then we run down the hill. And when we get to the cliff, we jump. We'll be fine, he said. Trust me. Okay, Toby. Now, I did take Toby at his word, and I did run, and I did jump, and I'm obviously still standing here today. Let me explain some of what, the reason why. My, my, fr- my family and I had been generously invited to go to Switzerland with some friends, and my wife treated me to a 30th birthday present of going hang gliding. So we drove up the side of a Swiss Alp in the Bernese Oberland. 
I chose willingly, of my own accord, to strap myself in to a relatively small aluminum frame with a sailcloth on it. And then I jumped off a mountain with Toby. But Toby had been doing this every day, multiple times a day, for many years. He had received training and licensure to do this. He knew these mountains well, and he knew this launch site well. He knew that the, the drag of our glider would be countered by the thrust of us running down the hill, and that the weight of our bodies would be countered by the lift of the wind coming up the side of that mountain. He knew that we were about to take off for a glorious ride. And I knew very little about the science of aerodynamics. I was learning quickly, but I was strapping myself to Toby, and I was taking him at his word. For the record, I highly recommend it to anyone who wants to give it a try. So much of the Christian life is doing just this. It's taking someone at their word. Someone who knows far more than we do. Someone whom we can strap ourselves to. Someone who says to us, trust me. In fact, here's a good, simple definition of faith. Taking God at his word. Friends, today we begin into the story of the book of Luke. If you haven't already, open your Bibles now to Luke chapter 1. This morning we're going to be in verses 5 through 25 of Luke 1. And through today's passage, we're going to see that God remembers his people, and he expects us to take him at his word. So for today, I won't read the whole text in advance, but I'll rather read each section as we watch this story unfold in Luke 1. From this story, we'll think about an answered prayer, an answered promise, and an answered doubt. All right, so first, look with me how the stage for this story is set in verse 6, or rather, let's begin in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, or Abijah, however you prefer. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. All right, chapter one, scene one, introduction to the main characters. We meet Zechariah and Elizabeth, a married, older Jewish couple. They had been faithful for years serving the Lord. So if it helps, picture an older, faithful church member who is just committed and serving the Lord for decades, right? This is Zechariah and Elizabeth. Note three things briefly about them from this introduction in particular. First, we see that the man that God picked to be at the center of this story is named Zechariah. And Zechariah's name means God remembers. God 
remembers. Now hold on to this. We're going to come back to this foreshadowing in just a minute. But second, notice that this older couple was incredibly faithful. He was a priest. She was of the lineage of a priesthood. And their lives were upright. They were walking blamelessly. That is, they obeyed God's commandments and statutes. God is choosing here a couple that had been walking in fear of him. Third, notice they are childless, verse 7. Because of Elizabeth's infertility, this couple had grown old without the joy of children. I wonder if you can imagine the pain of this. Years upon years of, of faithfully honoring God, faithfully walking before God, and God withholding this blessing to them. Some of you know this firsthand. This couple surely spent years waiting and wishing and hoping that God would give a child. And now it seems they're, they're old, and they surely thought that their chance had passed them by. So the stage is set. We have this faithful, older couple walking with God, living in infertility. Scene two, the setting for the story today unfolds for Zechariah. Look at verses 8 through 10. There we read, Now, while he, Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. All right, stop there for just a moment. Now, the priesthood is divided into 28 sections or divisions. They were groups of priests that would go and serve at the temple in Jerusalem. So about twice a year, uh, a division would be on duty. Zechariah, being of the division of Abijah, had his turn to serve in Jerusalem, come around. This was his turn, his week. He would have gone and done this perhaps twice a year. But the significance of this moment in this story increases all the more because Zechariah, the priest himself here, was chosen to enter the temple and burn incense. So here's what would happen. We understand from Exodus 30 that twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon, around twilight, uh, someone would be chosen from the division to go into the holy place of the temple and burn incense. And because of the number of priests in any given division, names were never selected customarily twice. So this would have been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for this priest, Zechariah. He was going into the holy place of the temple, offering incense and prayers to God Almighty. And then verse 10 heightens the suspense of this moment. We see there, Zechariah is entering the temple, and the whole multitude of people were all gathered around outside, and they were waiting outside, praying as he went forward into the temple. As one commentator remarks, this was the most climactic moment of Zechariah's priestly career. Perhaps the most dramatic moment for the following event to have occurred. So this is the setting for what unfolds, all right? Now, what happened? Follow along with me in verses 11 through 17. And there appeared to him 
and angel from the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So an angel appears standing before Zechariah. Can, can you feel Zechariah's heart pounding here in this moment? Luke tells us that he was troubled. He was literally, is greatly distressed. He was greatly disturbed. Fear fell upon him. Imagine if it were you. Imagine an angel just randomly appearing before you. Not so randomly. He is in the holy place. But the shock Many have observed from Scripture that this is the common response when man interacts with a messenger from Almighty God. Whether Zechariah meeting Gabriel here or later in the chapter when Mary meets the angel Gabriel herself, or even back in the Old Testament in Daniel, when Daniel met the angel Gabriel, we read that he fell prostrate. He was terrified at the very sight of this angelic being. Fear and reverence Arise at the sight of one who stands in the presence of God. Well, what is the message delivered by this messenger? He brings a blessing from God. God has remembered his people, Zechariah. There's two aspects of this blessing that comes from God, and I don't want us right now to miss either of these things that are happening. So first... Notice the answered prayer. That is, I want you to notice specifically the personal kindness of God to Zechariah and Elizabeth. This older, barren couple will have a son. They will have joy and gladness. They will call his name John. They had waited blamelessly before the Lord for many years, and now God would give them a child. The angel tells us that God had heard Zechariah's prayer. Now, admittedly, we're not told the nature of Zechariah's prayer here. Perhaps he was praying for the salvation of Israel. Certainly he later rejoices in that later in the chapter. But it strikes me, if you look closely at verse 13, that when the angel says his prayer has been heard, it's explained most immediately by the fact that his wife will bear a son and that John will come and that they will have joy and gladness in this child. So the angel's first explanation to the answer prayer is the gift of a son. Perhaps some time ago, Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying. Perhaps they had grown tired in their prayers as they grew older. 
Regardless, I don't want you to miss the point here. I think what we are seeing is a personal kindness of God come to this infertile couple. Notice, too, Elizabeth is mentioned by name by the angel. There's a, a personal aspect to this coming gift. And then we see it come to fruition at the end of the passage. So jump down with me to verses 24 and 25. Look how sweet this news is for Elizabeth. We read there, after these things, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So here, apparently, Elizabeth steps away for some time, waiting until somewhere in the, the middle of her second trimester to when an older woman like herself could hope there's less risk of losing the child. And while she is there, waiting for this child, she rejoices. She sees God's tender providence in this pregnancy. Even while yet in the womb, this child is a gift from God. Now, before we even look at the broader purpose of John's life that we're about to get to, I think we learn something here about the gift of children and the pain of infertility. And so, just as your pastor here, let me just take like four minutes for a sidebar here, all right? I just want to look at this text and see what does this teach us about this trial. And maybe you aren't walking through infertility right now yourself, but use this moment to prepare yourself to minister to someone else in this church who is, and to learn about suffering for yourself. First, number one, notice, biblically, barrenness and infertility is a difficult trial. Now, we know that our identity is not found in having children, okay? So, Scripture regularly highlights this greater honor of spiritual children, like in Isaiah 56. But we see in verse 25 here that Elizabeth felt like a, this was a reproach among people. This is because children are a good gift from the Lord. And anytime God chooses to withhold a good gift, it can be painful. So church, we should walk with compassion alongside of those who are struggling with infertility. But number two, notice infertility is not necessarily a punishment of personal sin. Do you see that in the text? It, it, now, it is the result of the fall, but notice how clear the text is. This is not a punishment for something Elizabeth did. Verse 6, she was blameless. She was upright. God chose a godly woman to walk through this trial so that he could use it for his glory. But then, number three, notice prayer is the right response to the suffering of infertility. And I would say, and to all suffering. Is it not? I understand verse 13 to mean Zechariah was praying for his wife. It brings back to mind places like 1 Samuel 1, where Hannah is seen praying to the Lord for a child and weeping bitterly in his presence. Friends, we go to God in our suffering Prayer is the right response to suffering. The Puritan John Flavel says this. He says, There is no sin in complaining to God, but much wickedness in complaining of him. 
To whom should children go but to their father to make their moan? Are you hurting today? Turn to God in prayer. Fourth, notice that God is sovereign over the womb. Verse 25 emphasizes that God gives Elizabeth this child. Make no mistake, this is in his hands. He is sovereign. Then lastly, five, notice that God has here a personal and tender love for his children. You can't miss that in the text. God heard their prayer. He sent an angel. The angel comes and mentions dear Elizabeth by name. And then Elizabeth, verse 25, understands this as a direct kindness to her. This is the work of a personal, kind, tender God. Church, remember, God's love for you is not a reluctant love. He isn't holding up his nose, putting up with you, and then finally, reluctantly giving you what you keep asking for. No, Jesus tells us God is a good father who loves to give to his children who come to him and ask. So God is giving this barren couple a child. All right, let's move on. Because we not only see here this, this answered prayer, but we see an answered promise. I want you to see this in the text. More is happening than just this family. Not less, but certainly more. We see this through an answered promise. God is not only remembering this couple, he is remembering his people. Did you notice the, the language of fulfillment of that, this passage that I just read for you? After telling Zechariah that many will rejoice at this child's birth, he gives eight back-to-back -back statements about this child, starting in verse 15. So let's look at them very briefly together and see how God is going to work through John the Baptist. So the first three of them have to do with this man's personal consecration. You see, it says that he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit. So this man, this child that's to be born, will be set apart by the Lord. He will not be an ordinary child. In God's eyes, he will be great. And this commitment to not drinking wine seems to be reminiscent of a Nazarite vow, a sign of his consecration to God. So John has a, a special ministry. And it would be so important, so special, that the Holy Spirit would come upon John, this, this child, even from the womb. Well, what would he do? What is the nature of this ministry? The next four phrases, starting in verse 16, if you look down there, it's all centered around this prophetic role of calling for repentance. This is what John is going to do. He's going to call for repentance. Repentance in the Bible is this idea of, of radical change. J.I. Packer explains that repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are one's, and one's whole life are lived completely differently. So imagine you are walking one direction and you have a specific destination you're going to, and all your purposes and your goals are headed this way. Repentance is not just changing your goals and your thoughts and your values and your mind to go that way. It also includes turning 
and starting to walk the other way and desiring and pursuing and making a goal of going in the opposite direction. This is what we see explained in this coming ministry of this child. It's repentance. By the way, let me just pause here. Perhaps you're here today and you are not yet a follower of Jesus Christ. Friend, let me just tell you that this call for repentance is foundational to what we find here in the Bible. That God God has called all of us to follow him, but all of us have, instead of choosing to walk after God's way, we have turned and walked after our own ways. We have pursued ourselves as king rather than Jesus Christ as king. And so God calls us to repentance. In his grace, he sent Jesus Christ. This is the story of Luke. He sent Jesus Christ to live a perfect life and die on the cross for our sin and then rise again from the grave so that anyone who turns to him in faith a faith that produces this repentance, may have eternal life. Let me just encourage you, if your life is not showing the signs of repentance today, talk to someone about placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this is the ministry that that John is going to do. It's a ministry of repentance, and it's among the nation of Israel. John fits into a larger story. It's his coming as a a prophet to the children of Israel, and he's coming and he's telling them, you're walking this way, turn around. So notice verse 16. It says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. They They weren't facing the Lord. They weren't walking towards the Lord. They weren't pursuing him, and he will be the means that God uses to turn them. Verse 17, he will go before him in the the spirit and power of Elijah. So this child's ministry will be a prophetic ministry like Elijah's. Daryl Bach comments here that Elijah's ministry involved a powerful declaration of the need of God's people to return to a faithful walk with God. But then verse 17, we read again, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. So here we have these two parallel phrases showing that there's reform coming in both horizontal and vertical relationships. By the way, fathers, this is just interesting. Just chew on this this week. It seems that as God's repentance comes to God's people, It includes men caring for their families. Just been chewing on that this weekend. I still haven't figured it all out. If you figure it out, talk to me after the service. But overall, John, the son of Zechariah, will call God's people here to repentance. And then we see that this this repentance, and and I I want you to catch this, is the fulfillment of a prophecy. See, if, if you are reading this, or you're hearing this, as Zechariah is, you probably would notice that these are biblical phrases. The angel here is quoting from Malachi 3 and Malachi 4, as God promises this messenger to come, prepare a way for the Messiah. 
In fact, verse 17 is a direct quote from Malachi 4.6. He's just quoting the Old Testament to Zechariah there in the temple. We realize that God is remembering his promise to the people of Israel. The promises of coming salvation, God remembers. Look then at the last phrase here of this message coming from the angel in the temple that day. We see that he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Oh, this is glorious. This is, this is reminiscent of the, the prophecy with, which uh, Darren and Kathy read earlier in our service today. God had not just promised to bring salvation. He had promised to prepare his people for this salvation. So the repentance that John will bring is actually a ministry of preparation for Christ. What a beautiful picture. God is preparing a people for himself. A people who are ready for the Lord. First Baptist Church of Boynton Beach. Do you see this common theme again? I'm just going to keep pointing it out, pointing it out again and again. God is not just working to bring salvation to individuals. It's not just you before God and your walk before God that God is making right in the gospel. God is working and has always been working to make in us and through us a corporate people together as a body. And here he's doing it in preparation for Christ's first coming. I'd argue he's doing the same thing in preparation for his second coming. Praise God for this. Well, we'll see more of this ministry of the John the Baptist and the repentance he brings in the next couple chapters. Let's now jump back to his father, Zechariah. We've seen this answered prayer and an answer to promise. Now, look at this answer to unbelief. Go back to that temple scene and this message that's been delivered. Zechariah is there, he's, he's lighting the incense, and the, the smell of the incense is wafting up, and it's filling his nostrils as he's, he's recovering in fear before this angel. And hearing the answers to his prayers hearing these texts, which he surely knew. After all, he's a priest. Surely he knew what was being quoted to him, waiting for this coming Messiah. We'd like to think right now that Zechariah just burst out into praise, right? We'd like to imagine that he can't help but just exalt in what God is doing here and this great, glorious plan that is being told to him. That's actually the natural flow of the story, I'd argue. This is what the readers might expect the first time you hear this. Here's this godly priest, blameless, serving in the temple. God sends a messenger to him. He gets to hear this message of God's work, the work that he's been reading about, the Messiah that he's been waiting for. Praise God. It's happening through his son. And it's happening at this very moment. But then there's this massive twist in the story. Zechariah, it turns out, is far more similar to you and I than we would care to admit. Look at his response and what happens in verses 18 through 23. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I... I'm an old man, and my wife 
is advanced in years. Poor Elizabeth. Uh, And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So Zechariah responds in unbelief. The, the I in verse 18 is notably emphatic. He's saying, how shall I know this? For, for I am an old man. This is what unbelief does, by the way. It makes the I in our lives emphatic. It puts us and what we see as happening in the center. And in the process, it makes God small. When you prioritize your perspective, be on guard, you're likely diminishing God's. Well, Zechariah had just heard the most profound message that mankind had received from God in over 400 years. And he thinks about doing, but he thinks about himself. He asks for a sign because of his old age. His request comes from unbelief. So listen closely, Christians. This doubt comes not from a new Christian. This comes from a man who had been walking blamelessly with God for a long time. This should catch our awareness right now. We should be listening carefully. Now, by the way, you might say that it was wrong, was it really that wrong for Zechariah to wonder this? After all, he was old. His wife was old. Well, in the first case, if there's any question about what was going on in his heart, uh, in verse 18, Gabriel will explain that it was unbelief. So regardless of how much we understand, we know he, he was filled with unbelief. But second, notice that Zechariah is not wondering if this angel is from God or not. That's not the nature of his question. He's not marveling at how God will do this glorious thing that he's going to do. No, Zechariah is standing there in the holy place, talking to an angel, hearing fulfillment of scripture, and still asking for more proof. By not believing this messenger of God, Zechariah was not believing God himself. He was not taking God at his word. So, Gabriel recognizes this. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. This is heavy. Gabriel responds to Zechariah's I, I am too old. How shall I know this? With his own emphatic I. Hey, buddy, I am an angel you're talking to right here. 
I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent specifically for this. This isn't just some casual conversation, Zechariah. This isn't just water cooler talk or I don't just happen to be hanging out by the altar of incense every afternoon and caught you this afternoon. No, I was sent from the very presence of God Almighty to quote the scripture to you, to, to tell of this coming salvation. Now, clearly, Zechariah had partially believed. He was processing. But he didn't fully take God at his word. And partial belief makes us look like fools in the eyes of God. And so that's exactly what the angel does to him. He becomes a mute man. He can't speak. What an ironic sign. Zechariah asked for a sign. Here's a sign. If you want a sign, you won't be able to speak. Zechariah speaks in unbelief, and Gabriel seems to say, you probably shouldn't speak at all. So having kept the people waiting outside, Zechariah then comes out, unable to speak. He makes signs, he remains mute, and then he finishes duty and returns home. I think the point of this telling of the exit and his return home is to emphasize the irony of what's happening here. Zechariah is just quietly exiting stage right. And it's in complete irony. See, the, the one man at this point on the face of the earth who has heard the grand fulfillment which this nation had been waiting for, that man cannot speak. He can't tell them. So he quietly exits. He's disciplined and must remain quiet. His unbelief will leave him sitting on the best news for the next nine months. And it's been told it's time, and he can't praise God for this news yet. We'll get there in a couple weeks. We should close. I wonder how you are doing as you hear me talk about this. I wonder how you are doing at taking God at his word. God is trustworthy. If there's anyone we should always trust, it's God, is it not? It's not always best to jump off a Swiss Alp. But not every message of man can be explicitly trusted. But every message from God can be explicitly trusted. So here's a warning to us who are like Zechariah and Elizabeth, who have been walking for, with the Lord for some time. We must take God at his word. Do you still truly believe what God says is true for you, O Christian? Think about where this falls in this book. The first story given to Theophilus so that he might have certainty is this story. Listen, O oh, oh congregation of Theophiluses, there is a certainty which we must have. Or let me say that another way. There is a doubt which insults the one who's speaking. When God speaks, we must believe. 
Explicit promises demand an explicit faith. So where are the corners of your heart where unbelief is lurking in your response to God's word? What are you walking through right now where if you truly believe what God's word says, your response would look different? Do you struggle with anxiety? Failing to fully believe that he will never leave you nor forsake you? Hebrews 13, 5. Do you struggle with the, the pleasures of sin? Failing to believe that in God's presence is fullness of joy and at his right hand is where there are pleasures forevermore. Do you struggle with guilt? Failing to believe that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Do you struggle with the future, failing to believe Jesus' words when he said, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also? So I'm just listing these out, just trying to prime the pump in your mind to think about where, what you're actually walking through in your life. What has God's word said? Where do you struggle to take God at his word? Where do you struggle to believe that God's promises are true for you? Maybe today over lunch or tomorrow over coffee, you should discuss with a friend and try to identify where unbelief might lurk in your heart. Because explicit promises demand explicit faith. Friends, our God is trustworthy. He is orchestrating history to redeem his people. He is making ready a people for the Lord, a people prepared. Let us be a people who take God at his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we praise you that your word is infinitely reliable. We praise you that that you have spoken and that we can trust what you've said. Father, I pray that you would build in us the ability to trust you, to have faith, to believe what you say is true. Father, I pray for this body. I pray that you would reveal to us places where we might not be taking you at your word. I pray that we would believe what you say and obey this week. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Church, let me-